Dublin, 1943. The scene is Irish Army Intelligence Headquarters at McKee Barracks on the North Circular Road. Army personnel gather excitedly. One of their colleagues has just broken a seemingly unbreakable Nazi code. This same coded message has baffled some of the greatest minds in Bletchley Park, the centre of British code-breaking during the Second World War. As the military men and intelligence officers chatter excitedly, a small, besuited man sits alone in one corner of the room. But who was this mysterious man? You know, he wasn't a distant father in that sort of a way. He was a father. He was a very approachable man. An aesthete who spoke passionately about Chester Beatty. He began about 1906, his first collecting snuff bottles, Chinese snuff bottles. A brilliant academic. He did three degrees in the one year in three different subjects, which I think was very unusual at the time. And he was also one of World War II's most prolific Nazi codebreakers. His name was Dr Richard Hayes, the wartime director of the National Library of Ireland. Without Hayes, uh, I think we could have very well had a different outcome in World War II. So why do we know so little about Dr Richard Hayes? because the work that he did was so sensitive that the lives of millions depended on him, working in the shadows, quietly and carefully. During the Second World War, Dublin was one of the major centres of espionage, as Gerry Long of the National Library of Ireland explains. Richard Hayes was the director of the National Library, but he was also, during the years of the emergency, working on code-breaking. So it's interesting to think of this activity going on in Dublin because uh, Ireland was neutral, of course, but uh, Hayes was working on um, code-breaking and the director of the museum um, who had left Ireland, Adolf Marr, was uh, a leading Nazi in Ireland and the director of the gallery, George Furlong, uh, was working for um, British espionage. The underground world that Hayes was to inhabit had a reputation far beyond these shores. In, in, in many ways, Dublin was the equivalent of Casablanca or Lisbon or one of these other sort of international ports of call for, for spies or for intelligence. Mark Hull is a serving member of the US Army and a military historian. There were so many different things going on, so many different layers. In, in Dublin is incredibly confusing, but you have Adolf Marr, who, who's a very serious doctrinaire Nazi. And you have different, some stay behind Nazis, but it's an incredibly, it's an interesting situation because Ireland is neutral. You still have active embassies. You still have the active German embassy, the active Italian embassy, the active Japanese embassy, including the American embassy. During World War II, Nazi Germany, through its secret service, the Abwehr, tried to penetrate Ireland at all levels through espionage. While most perceived this threat as harmless due to Irish neutrality, the situation was much graver. In, in the period we're talking about, uh, Army Intelligence was known as G2. Um, that's an American designation for, within the, the American General Staff structure. Yuna you know, no Halpin. Uh, prior to 
the adoption of G2, uh, it would have simply been known as intelligence or the intelligence department or whatever, it would, have, it would have had different titles within the National Army. In 1940, through, through their own radio surveillance, the British become aware that there are transmissions coming from Ireland uh, that, aren't, that, aren't, uh, that, are, that are illicit. They're, they're either they're coming from uh, Irish Republicans with radio sets sending messages in, in, a mor in Morse and some kind of code, are uh, they're coming from uh, German or other 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 sources in Ireland, and over time, um, the, the British Security Service MI5 bring this up with the Irish and with G2, and they, the Irish attempt to trace these radio transmissions. Now the Irish do tra trace the radio transmissions, and they discover that they're coming from the German legation, which is Northumberland Road. Uh, they don't tell the British immediately that they've tr that they've traced them because it creates a very difficult diplomatic problem because it turned out the Germans had a secret radio in their legation in Dublin. Ireland faced a serious problem. A secret transmitter had been found in the German embassy, or legation as was the term in the 1940s. They couldn't, with the problem with the radio transmission is it's instantaneous. You, you go bip, bip, bip here and somebody picks it up over there. So the speed of the communication, as well as the fact that, that it's, it's in a high level code, is a huge danger an additional danger. It was as a result of the discovery that the German legation had a secret radio and that they were using it, uh, that, that, that the problem was brought to Mr. de Valera's attention, Mr. de Valera being a mathematician, and he, see, he, he thought that Ireland should attempt to break the German traffic because it posed such a threat. Somebody was needed with the skills to intercept messages, break codes and interrupt the traffic back to Nazi Germany. It was a role that Richard Hayes was about to adopt with some style. At this stage, Taoiseach Eamon de Valera had become profoundly aware that there was an imminent threat to Ireland. I am sure the deputies will have seen the statements I recently made on the dangers that threaten our country. These dangers are now obvious, and I refer to them only in order that the Doyle and the country may see the urgent necessity for the defence measures which the government is taking. The reservists of the regular army and the first-line volunteers are all being called to the colours. A campaign to secure thousands more recruits for the army will at once be undertaken. Those who are willing to give their services to the nation being registered at once, so as to be called up for training the moment we can take them. In view of the dangers that confront us, I am sure all our people will be united as one man behind the government, ready to meet aggression from whatever quarter it may come. But whatever about the army reserve, what the country needed was the right people in the right places to do the right thing at the right time. Kilkenny man Dan Bryan was appointed director of G2, Ireland's version of MI5, the military's intelligence branch. And Dan Bryan knew Ireland's role was not to outfight, but to outsmart the Germans. Once the transmitter was located in the legation and it was possible to take down its messages, the question of trying to break the code arose. Mr. de Valera, as a mathematician, was much interested and felt that the code could be broken. The situation was grave. Dan Bryan feared the Germans were gathering intelligence for invasion plans and wanted to use the IRA to create instability in Northern Ireland. It was decided to set up a team and make an effort to break the code. Brian knew the very man to lead the code-breaking unit. 
Dr. Richard Hayes of the National Library, who had previously worked with intelligence for a short period until he was appointed director of the library, was put in charge of the team. He assembled a team of people alleged to have mathematical or similar talents or who are interested in codes. Brian knew that the stakes were high and that the code must be broken to avoid the Nazi threat and the possible threat of a preemptive British invasion. But military persona had also been allocated to the team and continued working for some time. They were Con McGovern, who was just commissioned and had a master's degree of some kind. Also, Mr Kevin Boland, son of the minister, Gerald Boland, Minister for Justice, and himself afterwards, Minister for Defence and Local Government. While Richard Hayes continued to try and break the German diplomatic code, things took a more sinister turn. Nazi Germany had begun secretly sending spies into Ireland. Hayes, the family man, who had spent all his life in universities, was about to encounter something that was far from academic. In November 1940, as Hayes put his children to bed, unbeknownst to him, a German spy dressed in full Luftwaffe uniform gently parachuted into a field in Beliver County Meath. His name, Dr. Hermann Gertz. Although neither man knew it yet, Gertz was about to become Richard Hayes' number one target. 4th of May, start 2100 hours GMT. Ireland, 2300 hours GMT. Uneventful flight, average 5,000 metres over mid-England, entered at Scarborough. No enemy interference as there was thick fog over England. Such lights could not penetrate. Irish sea unbroken blanket of cloud, breaking up over Ireland. We have no orientation, but nevertheless, I jump out, as we already have a false start. Uh, my name is Marcel Kruger. Um, I'm a German non-fiction writer and translator. I live in Dundalk. Um, and this man uh, is a bit of a flamboyant character. Um, Hermann Goetz was born in Lübeck in Germany in 1890. Um, trained as a lawyer, then served in the German army in the First World War, um, was transferred to the German Air Force where he served with Hermann Göring, who later became uh, Hitler's number two um, in the 30s in Germany. Um, after the war ended, he worked as a lawyer um, in international law, if I remember correctly, and he was always very interested in, in England and in Ireland and the whole connected history between the, the two countries, Ireland and Germany. Immediately on landing, I hide my own parachute. After turning round, the aircraft makes the mistake of flying away exactly over place of landing. I conceal myself, do not know whether in six counties or era. To look for the parachute seemed to me more important than an attempt to orient myself. Did not give up my search until the countryside came to life. Parachuted into Ireland in 1940, um, wearing his full Luftwaffe uniform, uh, wearing his World War One medals. Um, so the uniform part that is allegedly um, that, that was a common practice in World War Two, because if he would have parachuted in wearing civilian clothing um, he, and he was caught being a spy, he could have been shot straight out of hand without any um, any trial whatsoever. Dangerous meeting with at first one, then two countrymen. I keep these two. The one, an Irish nationalist, friendly to Germany. The other, a half-idiot, with me, in the place of concealment, by gentle compulsion with my gun, until the quiet midday hour. 
I learn that I am in error to the north of Dublin. The IRA and Nazi Germany had a common enemy, Britain. Germany would come to rely on the IRA to ensure their Nazi spies would be taken care of in the field. If Germany could mastermind an invasion of Northern Ireland, and perhaps even the Republic, they could open another front in which to fight Britain, right on our own doorstep. Uh, the IRA had come up with a plan they called Plan Kathleen, which was uh, providing the Germans with information and details about uh, Derry and the Loch, where they could uh, stage like a amphibious landing or something. And when that was happening, the IRA would, would uh, do an uprising, um, fight the British on land, and then the Germans could march in and, and free Ireland, so to speak. Gertz marched overnight to Dublin, eventually making his way to Lara in County Wicklow and then to various safe houses in some of Dublin's most leafy suburbs, such as Charlemont Avenue in Dunleary, Temple Oak, and Norana Road in Dalkey. Uh, he made contact with the IRA in, um, in Dublin and then was put into various safe houses. And then in um, June or July, just a month or so after he had landed in Ireland, one of those safe houses was raided by the guards. Um, guards escaped, but he left all his, his medals, his precious medals, um, uh, German documents and especially the details of Plan Kathleen was also found. So uh, that was that. So all the the necessities he needed to to work properly, so to speak, uh, were gone. And then he was uh, sent from pillar to post from to various, um, especially ladies with with Republican leanings who who put up with him. Gertz cut a dashing figure, attending parties under false aliases, and becoming romantically involved with various Republican spinster ladies in South County Dublin. As Gertz moved from safe house to safe house in the dead of night, Richard Hayes led a very different sort of life. Hello, Fairy. How are you? I'm Grant. It's lovely to finally meet you. I decided to track down some of Richard Hayes' family to try and learn more about him. Would you like a cup of tea or a cup of coffee or anything? Or no. After much searching, I found Richard's daughter, Claire, whom he nicknamed Fairy. She is his only living child. That's one when they opened the second library in, in uh, the Chester Beatty. She's showing me some pictures of her father. The pictures show a small, unassuming man dressed in a tweed suit. And my mother. So this is Richard here. This is, that's him, that's my mother. And that's my sister, that's Paddy Henshey, who was the next director after him in the National Library. As I look around Fairy's house, there are many pictures and newspaper cuttings of her dad. It's clear he was a huge figure in her life. Richard was born in County Limerick and grew up in County Mayo. My father was born in Abbeyfield um, and then they moved to, he primarily grew up in Clermont. Richard showed a lot of academic promise in school and eventually he went to Trinity College Dublin where he studied languages. He did three degrees in the one year in three different subjects, which I think was very unusual at the time. My memories of my father, of course, would be always be sitting at a desk with the index cards. You know, if you, if you, you know the way if you said, like, what, do you, is, what would you associate with your father? You would always be this man sitting at a desk. Richard was a man who was clearly an intellectual heavyweight. He would need all his talents to break the Nazi codes being used in Ireland. I'm Gary Maguire. I'm a professor of mathematics in UCD. I'm head of the School of Mathematics and Statistics. My area of research is cryptography and the mathematical algorithms that relate to 
encryption and cryptography. During the Second World War, messages were distributed through codes known as ciphers. Yeah, well, a cipher is used generally for a message which one wants to protect. You want to keep it secure. So you want to send a message to somebody, usually a distance away, and you don't want anyone else in between to, to be able to read the message. So it's a, it's a bit like putting a message in a locked box. You put a padlock on the box, you lock the padlock, and only you and the receiver have the key. So the box, the box then goes through lots of people's hands, but they can't open it because they don't have the key. But the person you want to receive the message at the other end has the key, can open the lock and take out the message and read it. Richard Hayes records in his diary just how complex this task was. Ciphers have been of far greater importance in the present war than ever before in history. This was due to the universal use of wireless as a means of communication. The British cryptographical staff tried to solve ciphers until there was at least two to 3,000 letters of material available. They considered anything less as either impossible or depending on pure good luck, and good luck will not appear unless there is a wide range of averages to produce it. Here, weeks were spent on material of 200 to 400 letters. It requires incurable optimism to carry on with such impossible attempts. Uh, a very simple cipher would be what we call a substitution cipher. So, for example, in, the, in English letters, A might be replaced by B and B might be replaced by C and so on and so on. So when, when a German spy was captured in Ireland during World War II, which happened a few times, they would be particularly, they would be looking for the code book, the book of keys. So what Richard Hayes did was he, he worked on decrypting their messages, usually without the key, though. And that was, that was the real trick. That, was the, that requires a bit of cleverness and ingenuity, which apparently he was very good at. My name's Dr Chris Smith, and I'm an historian of modern Britain intelligence uh, working out of Coventry University. And uh, what Hayes does is he, he's tasked almost single-handedly to break m- this material. And some of it he has some success with. Uh, so, for example, the stuff which he's doing in terms of the Abwehr agents actually operating illegally in Ireland, he's certainly by 1943 extremely successful in breaking that kind of material. But he has a little bit less success with things like uh, German diplomatic ciphers, so he doesn't necessarily do quite so well there. But then again, we wouldn't necessarily expect him to. And we have to remember that in the case of Hayes, he's effectively a one-man army in this context. And he also made uh, very good friends with people in uh, places like Bletchley Park, GCNCS, uh, because of uh, you know they respected just how good he was and um, how effective he was. And he also seemed to be an, uh, a very kind of a nice man as well, and people found it very easy to get on with him in that sense, which all kind of fostered this ability for these different organisations to, to work well together. Uh, so yes, it, it, in that sense, they, they thought he was, you know, they thought he was a very impressive individual, and he, you know, as the, as I think the historical record shows, the stakes were huge. In November 1940, Gertz was planning to link with the IRA to facilitate a Nazi invasion of Northern Ireland. German espionage in the UK was was very largely not simply wiped out, but it was it was effect came under British control. And over time, this became not just a security issue, but it became a weapon through which the Germans could be deceived. British intelligence had penetrated German espionage at a high level. It was now crucial that the Germans could not obtain an accurate reading of the situation in the United Kingdom or in Ireland. 
by allowing German agents to appear to remain in the United Kingdom and to appear to be sending back information, it meant the Germans didn't need to send more agents whom the British mightn't catch. But secondly, it meant that the British could plant through these agents. They could start uh, planting information and uh, affecting the mindset, if you like, of the Germans about British strategic plans and so on. And that's what the British did. In Ireland, Hermann Goertz remained at large. But if the price of not apprehending German spies was so high, why was he still at liberty? Unlike the other dozen or so agents sent, sent to Ireland, Gertz is free for a long time. And he's obviously free for a long time to some extent because he's being protected. Whether he's being protected uh, by uh, uh, certain politicians and perhaps even ministers, as, as the British assumed, uh, or whether it's just that he's, he's looked after particularly well, not simply by the IRA, but by Republican-minded people, um, we don't know. But it takes a long time for the guards to track him down. They eventually get him in November 41 in, in uh, Dunleary. Gertz was brought to Arbor Hill Prison in Dublin, where he was confined to a small cell. But he was determined that his mission would not fail. A high-stakes game of mental chess began, and Hayes recorded every move in his diary. After Gertz had been captured and put into Arbor Hill Prison, I used to visit him once and sometimes twice a week and chat to him to try to get information from him. We built up a very friendly relationship. But Gertz had a few moves of his own. He began smuggling out messages using his code on pieces of paper, which he passed to a sympathetic Republican prison guard. One day, when talking to Gertz, I noticed that he had a bunch of papers in his hip pocket of his trousers, a rather thick bunch of papers. I had suspected him for some time of being able to get messages out to the IRA through some of the guards in the prison who were military policemen. In fact, this proved to be true, but we were unable to prove it at the time. I used to search his cell regularly when he was out in exercise, but never found anything there which could have helped. And I asked myself how I could get at these papers which, being in his trousers pocket, went out with him when he went for exercise. Gertz himself provided me with the solution of how to get at the papers without his knowledge. He happened to remark that his old ulcer pain had come back. He had a duodenal ulcer and it was giving him trouble. I arranged for the prison doctor to have him x-rayed, determining to go through his clothes while he was being x-rayed. He was therefore brought to St. Brickens Military Hospital under armed guard. I had gone there in advance so that Gertz would not see me there and remained in the doctor's private room downstairs while Gertz was brought upstairs to a waiting room. The idea was that I would go through his clothes while he was being x-rayed, copy the documents and replace them before he came back from the x-ray. I should mention that Gertz took the idea of being x-rayed in good part as he felt that great attention was being paid to his health. It was Hayes versus Gertz, the dashing Nazi spy versus the genius Irish librarian. While looking through the papers, Hayes began to piece together Gertz's keyword. I began to work on his cipher and after several months finally solved it. Using a combination of logic, ingenuity and frequency analysis, Hayes deduced that the keyword was Kathleen Nihulahan. The 14 or 15 messages finally proved to be practice messages relating to what happened to Gertz from the time he left Frankfurt to be dropped by parachute into Ireland 
and what happened to him for some months afterwards. He had evidently prepared these in order to send them whenever he could to Germany, as he had no means of communicating because he had no wireless set. He lost his set when it was thrown out of the plane before he parachuted out, and the wind took it away and he was never able to find it. That is, his transmitting set. It was a very complicated cipher going through three stages, two substitutions and one transposition. Hayes had broken Gertz's code, but he could not let him know. Hayes' plan was simple. Allow Gertz to continue sending messages to his Nazi handler. Hayes would intercept them, but not only that, he'd reply to Gertz, pretending to be his spymaster in Berlin. All of Gertz's reports were, were captured and, and not forwarded on to Berlin. Instead of sending back, uh, uh, sending reports back to Berlin and then receiving replies um, from, from his handler there, all the replies that Gertz was getting while, while being active in Dublin were actually uh, from Hayes and, and the Irish Secret Service who made up a conversation with him to, uh, to, to get out a few more details out of this. And as you know, famously Gertz, uh, they send back messages to Gertz, commending him on his report. They promote him. It's slightly cruel. He's told he's been promoted uh, and all these kind of things. So Gertz is completely taken in by, by what he thinks is uh, the legation, uh, who in turn are sending his reports to Germany. But in fact, they're only reaching uh, army intelligence here. The importance of continuing this deception of Germany while secretly using the codes that they had cracked was a tactic employed by all the great code breakers amongst them Richard Hayes and the legendary Alan Turing of Bletchley Park. The official historian of British intelligence during the Second World War, an historian called Sir Harry Hinsley, who was himself actually a Bletchley Park man during the Second World War, uh, he, he estimated that at least two years were shaved off the length of the Second World War and obviously saved millions of lives in, in that context. Based on this kind of information which was being produced by uh, people like Richard Hayes and, and the people at Bletchley Park. They're using the, these these agents whom the, in whom the Germans have faith, they're using them to spin this elaborate yarn, a process called strategic deception, so the Germans will be completely uncertain as to where, where the Allies are going to go next, but they will be convinced that they do know. The leakage of any information by Gertz back to Berlin could have had serious repercussions for the impending Normandy landings. So in that connection... Uh, Ireland remains really important because the danger is that information will come out of Ireland, which might challenge the story that, that the German agents controlled by Britain are sending back to Germany. It mightn't be true information, it might be nonsense, but the danger is that any information that the British haven't, whether it's true, uh, whether it's false, that the British haven't in a sense generated themselves, that that might disturb the picture, the big uh, strategic picture that, that British intelligence are carefully painting uh, to deceive the Germans, in, in particular about where the Allied landing in France, it's obvious there's going to be a, a movement uh, across to France and uh, by mid-43 it's clear because the Yanks want it, it's going to happen. The question is when and where it's going to happen. Not only did Hayes' work keep Ireland safe from a Nazi invasion and the country being used as a springboard to attack Britain, his code-cracking brilliance was now sought after far beyond Ireland's borders in the international battle of intelligence against Germany. Until the end of the war in 1945, Hayes cracked code after code from Dublin, sharing this crucial information with the Allies. 
This is Robert St. John in the NBC newsroom in New York. Ladies and gentlemen, we may be approaching a fateful hour. All night long, bulletins have been pouring in from Berlin claiming that D-Day is here, claiming that the invasion of Western Europe has begun. Because Hayes had managed to control the information traffic between Germany's spies and Central Command in Berlin, it meant that they could also control misinformation traffic. Incorrect plans for the Normandy landings, for example, were spread far and wide by Allied military intelligence using the Nazis' own channels and completely confusing Germany's ability to cope with the Normandy attack when it happened in June 1944. The weather was none too good, but the little ship tugged on manfully to the beaches, bringing enormous support in manpower and weapons, and bringing also... When the blow falls for Germany in June, 60 June 1944, when the Allies land in Normandy, uh, the German high command are absolutely convinced that this is only a feint, that that it's to distract them and that the main Allied attack has yet to come. And so Germany holds back her resources from a full-out assault uh, on the the Allied forces landing in Normandy because they think it's it's only the prelude to a bigger attack. But it wasn't just individual military operations that Hayes played an important role in. It's widely regarded by international military experts that without his work and those like him, in 1945, we may never have reached this moment. Yesterday morning at 2.41 a.m. at General Eisenhower's headquarters, General Jodl, the representative of the German High Command, and of Grand Admiral Dönitz, the designated head of the German state, signed the act of unconditional surrender of all German land, sea, and air forces in Europe to the Allied Expeditionary Forces and simultaneously to the Soviet High Command. Uh, Hostilities will end Officially, at one minute after midnight tonight, Tuesday the 8th of May, the German war is therefore at an end. Today is victory in Europe day. Ever the pragmatist, as the war ended, Hayes wrote to de Valera, warning him that Ireland should be prepared in the event of another emergency. We must not enter the next emergency without a nucleus, however small, of experienced staff. If we do, the danger will be over and the war lost or won before the necessary preliminary experience has been obtained. We must start in the next war where we left off in this, not surely from scratch again. As the war ended, so did Hayes' extraordinary relationship with a German spy, Dr Hermann Goertz. Richard Hayes returned full-time to his role as director of the National Library, but Goertz did not return to Germany. His story was to take one final drastic turn, which brought his relationship with Hayes in Ireland to a dramatic conclusion. And for two years after 1945, he worked for um, an organisation called Save the German Children, and this was um, an NGO that was bringing in um, malnourished German children over to Ireland to to literally uh, give them a good time here. Um, And he was their press secretary. Gertz had decided to remain in Ireland after the war. In 1947, in the wake of the Nuremberg trials, 
he was summoned to the Aliens Registration Office at Dublin Castle to be deported back to Germany. As he walked in the door, unbeknownst to anyone, he had a cyanide capsule hidden in his breast pocket, given to him at the start of the war by his Nazi spymaster. Having fought on the Eastern Front in World War I, Gertz had an irrational suspicion of Russians and feared he would be sent to a gulag in Siberia. As Gertz was approached by Gardy in the deportation office at Dublin Castle, he took the cyanide capsule out of his breast pocket and bit on it. Gardy wrestled with Gertz to try and stop him, but it was too late. As Hermann Gertz breathed his last on the floor of Dublin Castle, Hayes, the unassuming librarian, may well have been cycling down Dame Street on his way to work in the National Library. Hermann Goertz's funeral was attended by several prominent politicians. And when he was, uh, um, when he was buried, he was actually buried. Um, the coffin was draped in a, in a hand-stitched swastika flag uh, that was actually uh, created by the Republican ladies who had, um, who had put him up. Um, and many of his girlfriends were there, uh, and he was buried in his Luftwaffe greatcoat as well. So he was one of the, if not the last German, to be buried with the honours of, of Nazi Germany in 1947. Goertz's death provoked rumours about links with senior figures in the Irish establishment and their sympathy with his government's animosity towards Britain. There were visible links. If, if people would have digged a bit more, they, they would have seen visible links to Nazi Germany. And I think back in the time, um, even the, um, all the files concerned with Goertz's case were destroyed at some point on order of, of De Valera directly um, to to make it impossible to track these, these links to, to Nazi Germany later on. Hermann Goertz was buried in Dean's Grange Cemetery. In 1974, his body was exhumed in the middle of the night and reinterned in the German military cemetery in Glen Cree, County Wicklow. To this day, fresh flowers are laid on his grave. I think with Hermann Goertz especially, he kind of felt sad for, for him because by the end, he, the paranoia had, had consumed him. Uh, he was f- afraid. He didn't, he, was, he didn't want to go back home because he thought something bad was going to happen to him. And I think in his delusion, I think that was the, the proximal cause of his suicide. Hayes returned to a quiet life of intellectual pursuit, which lasted a further three decades. In 1976, he became seriously ill. He was taken home to Sandyford, County Dublin, to the house of his son Mervyn and Mervyn's wife Yvonne, and spent his final few months with them. No, he was very ill at that stage. He had to be siphoned out. It was very sad. But thank goodness he died very, seemed reasonably quickly anyway. You wouldn't want anybody to go through what he was going through. He smoked, you see, so he had not a good chest, you know. It wasn't a big funeral. It was more or less the family. He wanted to be cremated, which was the first person I knew. And I remember when he said he wanted to be cremated, I was quite upset. I said, oh, why would you do that? And he explained that was what he wanted. Richard Hayes passed away in 1976. He was buried in Dean's Grange Cemetery. A small crowd of family and friends attended his funeral as one of Ireland's greatest heroes of the Second World War was laid to rest 
his heroics passed with him out of mainstream popular memory. He said at the end of the war he went to England, but it had to be hush-hush because Ireland was neutral. And he got some medal from Churchill at the end of the war, but that he, you know, it couldn't be ever uh, announced or anything. Dr Richard Hayes was one of the most prolific codebreakers of the Second World War. But why has he all but disappeared from history? The tragedy here is, is his, he was lost in terms of the Irish public. Mark Hull, military historian. People in the business, in the intelligence services, Irish, American, British, I mean, they, certainly the Allied intelligence services, I mean, they understood and they recognized his contribution if, for being as significant as it was. You know, certain people, I suppose, maybe court publicity more than others. And he wouldn't have been that sort of a man. You know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have been a man who would be shouting his things from the hilltops. Uh, he was a man who, he was a doer and move on. I, I think in large measure he kept Ireland safe uh, because you had this core of people and, and he was, you know, it, it, a co-equal, co-equal, I think, with Dan Bryan in terms of what he, what he was able to do with this. He masterminded the counterintelligence program. He ensured that Germany felt they could not certainly directly invade Ireland. And I think the heroic thing about this with both Bryant and and with Dr. Hayes is they're doing this in some measure without their own government's approval or knowledge. It's an astonishing achievement uh, by Hayes to have, to have uh, broken the Gert cipher, but it's also an, an indication of how a very sophisticated intelligence operation can be run, you know, by a small country, by a couple of people who know what they're doing. Uh, De Valera's position was, I think, at best ambivalent, but Dr. Hayes and Dan Bryant, they really understood this, the danger probably better than their own government. And it... <laughs> I think it's almost, it's almost impossible to overestimate their contribution, uh, certainly to the country, and then also their, their part in the, winning the larger war. The fact that Ireland remained neutral throughout the war and was very fortunate in uh, not suffering in a way that the active protagonists did was very fortunate, and his contribution is very important to that. They're important people. They were doing important work. They won the war. And I, hate, I hesitate to think of, of, of the alternative or what would have happened if they, they had done their jobs badly. Today, when I cycle past the National Library of Ireland, I think of Richard Hayes. Father, librarian, brilliant academic. And lest we forget, Ireland's greatest Nazi codebreaker. <laughs>